Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is, God, what day is it? Thursday, March 16th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. I'm recording at 7 a.m. my time. Be schedule shenanigans. Rebecca is gracious enough to move around. I'm a little on the early side. I get up early, but I'm not recording mm-hmm. podcasts at 7. Yeah, functioning at 7 a.m. is, it's yeah. a lot. I was just thinking that, like, you know, in our younger and more vulnerable days when we wanted to mix things up, we recorded at like yeah. 9 p.m. and now it's like, let's be right. wild. 7 a.m. <laughs> I mean, 7 a.m. is easier for me than 9 p.m. these days. I've been asleep for an hour. That's now. true. Yeah, yeah, it's 10 o'clock here. My caffeine rocket ship is still like in full blast yeah. off mode, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, got some stuff to do. Not not a, the heaviest week in the world. We've got some stuff to talk about. But before we get into that, um, let's let's take a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal. Join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Critics Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book, titled The Dare, is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn 
more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Um, got a couple of listener feedback-y kind of things to do. Um, a lot of people having feelings, uh, it, I, rightly so, understandably so, about changing books you know um the, oh the yeah doll that that whole situation here um ian fleming a story came out this week i don't have in the show notes here I, I think maybe it's worth talking about in detail once i've had a chance to read it but um the publicist for Urles, ursula k Le Guin's estate said that some changes made to Le Guin's books for oh, somewhat similar reasons and it feels like it falls a little bit between the doll case which is doll had no part of it right Doll mm-hmm. was kind of a bad person in a lot of ways. Um, in the Fleming case, where he actually was changing some of the words himself, this was maybe Le Guin said she she authorized it or was talking about it or it's something other than cut out a whole cloth. Um, so I, I guess this is maybe more widespread than we think here. Uh, and We'll find out. I think people are going to come out with these stories as we see. I, you know, I'm not sure how how to deal with it. I still think people seem to get on board with our sense of. Um, I guess what are, I'm hard, having a hard time summarizing our senses. I get it. I get why you're wanting to do it. I think it comes from a good place. Is it missing the forest for the trees a little bit? And shouldn't we just move on? And is there a bright line between? The author doing it, saying this is the second edition, because this is something that happens. Like Walt Whitman were like 17 mm-hmm. editions of Leaves of Grass. Um, and those, you know, each had an introduction, an edition, and we can kind of chart through history. It does seem like there's a very strong um, opposition to this becoming the only document. Like the living, you know, this, mm-hmm. is, this is the new document. It's the one that's on the shelves. It's the only one you can buy. And everything else is sort of, I guess, archived that no one can see. So I get that. Um, so I, I guess it's my my new thing. If the, if the author wants to do a new it issue and change language to be whatever they want, in any case, do that, write an introduction, and somewhere in that book say what was changed. I think I'm okay yes. with that. Beyond that, yeah, that's... I'm getting nervous. 
<laughs> That's yes. firmly where I am. I want transparency for readers and for posterity of yeah. what was changed, why it was changed. I was thinking about this yesterday because I got a, a PR email notifying me that a 30th anniversary edition of Girl Interrupted is coming out. Oh, and so first God. of all, I had to have a moment that Girl Interrupted <laughs> is 30 years old. <laughs> And then I, you know, took some time to think about the fact that we let 10-year-olds read and watch stuff 30 years ago that we wouldn't mm. today, because I definitely was familiar with that when it was a fresh, you know, property. And I have no idea if they've done anything different with this 30th anniversary edition, but it seems to me like that's a book that would be a potential contender because it's uh, so, it's, it's about so. mental illness and how we talk about mental illness and issues of mental health and body image and eating disorder, all of those things are so different and have developed not just over the last 30 years, but really intensely over the last like five or six, that I could see a lot of possibility for something like that that's had enduring interest where they are, you know, going to do a big anniversary edition. If the author or anyone, you know, near the book says, hey, you know, like, for reasons of social responsibility, we want to update this, but let's also... I think just notify readers. It kind of mm -hmm. it comes back to also how I felt about, you know, go set a watchman, which we've talked about yes. from here to eternity is just tell the readers the truth. You know, your favorite. Treat me like an adult and tell me what the scam is. Like, <laughs> yes, just, just tell me this thing isn't a sequel. This was a draft and she never wanted it published. Tell me this guy was racist and now we're taking the language out or like we believe that it would be in line with this person's values to change the language because they, you know, were in line with the values at the time and those things have shifted. How we honor that has shifted. Just tell us. Just tell readers right. what's going on. And then it's less of a thing. I think where it gets complicated is where it when it feels like something's being done or like tr people are trying to like pull one over on you or like we're just going to change this and hope that no one remembers that historically this thing was filled with like fat phobia or racist language mm -hmm. that's not cool we let's not rewrite history but acknowledging acknowledging progress and wanting to change with it i can totally get behind let's just like document how that's going can we track changes <laughs> On these things, yeah. that's what I want. <laughs> there you go. I like that idea. Yeah, two two things occur to me. The first is, in a lot of ways, this is an issue of copyright when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Because the only reason these estates have the, I guess, juice to make these changes and then make this the authoritative edition is because they control the copyright. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of issues around copyright, and I want writers to get paid does their estate need to get paid for 60 years after their death? Mm, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm not really sure how to do with this. I'm sure if I had a best-selling book, and uh, or uh, put differently, if my grandfather had a best-selling book, I'd be more interested in protecting copyright. But how about this? This would never happen, but we're going... Wait. Oh, you know what? It's just under the bell here. The Court of Rightness starts session at 7.15. I think I can Great. get a rule. Let's see. Here we go. Let's say you do... We were taking Matilda. And if you change Matilda... And you're the estate, fine. But then what happens is the original text immediately goes into the public domain. How about that? Mm, I like that. Yes. Because once we're in the public domain, no issues. People can do what they want. You can make whatever mm -hmm. editions you want. And there becomes a thirst, I think, for the authoritative original version, right? Like, okay, I know people can do whatever they want, but what is the original recipe chicken really um, looking like here? So I, I think that's a way of thinking about what this is really about. I don't think most of the time this has anything to do with the artist's vision. This is about legacy 
and selling books. And mm-hmm. once you put it like that, I think some of the issues become more clear because it's, it's also true that because of the way texts work, you can do this, right? It's not like people are going to go, you know, yeah. you know Van Gogh, <laughs> you know, the colors. We got to touch that, up but, those sunflowers. Yeah, you know, there's <laughs> something about the hands and the Mona Lisa that's always bothered us. So the idea, the thing about the text is it's it's replicable, right? Be the printing press, blah, blah, blah. One of the great things about books is a paperback is is a good of a reading experience as a first edition, right? You get the same reading experience because Mm -hmm. of mechanical reproduction and Walter Benjamin and all that stuff. But what it also means is there is no sort of going to the Louvre and seeing the real McCoy um, because it is... It's an idea, right? It's 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 a code. Right. It's a, it's a sequence of text um, strings, and so it's a very very strange way of thinking about how these things are. Because I don't think anyone would be like, you know, we we really need to go take a look at the girl with the pearl earring, and where's her ear really like that? I think I think it'd be in the spirit of the artist that we you know um, change that. Now they clean it up. Right, you get the soot and dust and everything off of it. That that's a thing, but in terms of actually altering it, I I think we're right to be like, huh? I wonder about this. I think we're right mm-hmm. to wonder about it. When I think you're right to hang a lantern on the sales incentive because we're not mm-hmm. getting notices like this about books that came out ten or twenty <laughs> or fifty or a hundred right. years ago that have been dormant, and someone's like, you know, I just think we should update that thing because mm-hmm. it's passe or offensive. Now, it is happening to texts that have consistently sold for a very long time in most cases, and where there is a vested financial interest in having them continue to sell. And, you know, I think the most generous reading of that is someone deciding if we're going to continue to put this thing out in the world, and it should at least be, you know, caught up to the times. The least Mm -hmm. generous reading of it is someone recognizing oh, we're going to sell fewer of these because people find this offensive, so let's update it. And other forms of art, you're right, are not subject to that that same incentive, especially stuff like the Mona Lisa. Like That thing is not going to be sold again anytime soon. It is where it is. There's not an additional market for the Mona Lisa. The Louvre would have to be in dire financial straits. If you know what... (laughs) Which of right, these could like, we move? Would that be the last pick in the draft? It probably would be for the Louvre. It'd be the last thing in the Louvre. Right. right. It's the last thing going at the auction. Like oh, they're going to hold right. on to it until the, the very last moment. And folks want to go and they want to mm-hmm. see those records of things. You know, visual art is such a way of documenting what the world was like. And so there's also. I think less incentive to to even have a conversation around like is this painting offensive like maybe was it offensive at the time why is it offensive now there's there's just a conversation there's not the suggestion that that kind of art should be changed it reminds me though of like Disney you know changing yeah. elements of movies or just straight up taking some things out of the vault that can't mm-hmm. be saved you Song know? of the South right um, that's the, the example right yeah where it's just like we can't even fi- we can't figure out a way to sanitize this thing we're just going to not make it available wow. and I wonder about like musicians are maybe the closest corollary like there's there's language in songs from 30 years ago that we don't use now and you know, at least in my life, my understanding is people just don't sing those parts out loud 
anymore. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe you just don't listen to that song because now it contains language that you would rather not have going into your ears. But I wonder mm. if there are examples of musicians with long careers and long catalogs who like, do they change those lyrics up when they perform them live now? If they recorded a like best of album, would they switch yeah. it? would be really interesting. And I guess if anybody's listening and knows of something like that that's happened, I'd be super interested in it. Yeah, we'll move on. Uh, pod, uh, podcast yeah. at bookriot.com. Another thing you said, this is not on the topic, but I've had this thought for a while, and I'm, I want to get your take on it. You, the, the comment you made about 30th anniversary of Perks of Being a Wallflower <laughs> made me think, I don't know if there's something about our gener- our. I'm sorry, Rebecca, I'm looping you into my generation. I'm That's up fine. A, a few years. <laughs> our generation or modern sort of adulthood where we we seem particularly susceptible to the can you believe X thing came out N units of time ago, right? Like, I'm susceptible to this. I see this. Can you believe it's been 40 years since whatever and 50, you know, uh-huh. 50 years since Star Wars or whatever? Uh, is this new? Were our parents no. like in 1982? Were they like, oh, can you believe Sing in the Rain came out 30 years ago? Well, it doesn't feel like I that's a thing. Was- I think there was just less exposure to that stuff because they didn't have the internet perpetually reminding, like digging it up and reminding them. Um, but I did. They don't know what year it is. Is that what you're saying? Our parents were oblivious. <laughs> they had no idea about time. No, were but were they like neophytes? They were temporal neophytes. Yes, that's, every day that, they woke up, temporal. it was a new day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, it's Groundhog Day. Um, yeah, I just read a study about this at the Times. There was a piece in the Times. I'll try to find a link for the show notes, but. Uh, some psychologists were looking at like the question of how old do you feel in your mind? Like yeah. how old, how old are you on the, on the inside? And they found a really, really consistent pattern that on average people say that they feel inside this. or they think of themselves as about 20% younger than they actually are. And that they attribute some of the like real sticky nostalgia that happens in middle age to that thing, um, to that phenomenon. So I don't know if that's related, but what I'm thinking about is like when my parents were the age that we are now, they weren't getting up in the morning and seeing like on the front page of the Kansas City Star, it's been 50 years since singing in the rain, you know, but there's just like this, we're able to like stay in touch with pop culture now and pop culture in the past because of all the ways that the internet lets us dredge things up and then disseminate them widely that it's been this long since that thing but i remember like my childhood my parents were kids of the 70s or they were they were young adults in the 70s and my childhood was all the music that they listened to in the 70s in the same way that if i had kids my kids would be growing up on like counting crows and third eye blind (laughs) so I don't think it's new. I think we just see it differently in and in a magnified way because no, of what I, the nostalgia nostalgia has been around. I mean, that's that's the Greeks, baby. I mean, they, they, that's that's a few <laughs> millennia. I, I think the eternal surprise of, I guess that let's call it the the internet generations, and you can throw up what the post internet generation seems to be more surprised about the passage of time than any generation <laughs> before it. Maybe. Maybe we're the temporal neophytes. Our parents were cool. Maybe. Like, we're, we're beings going through time and space and things happen and then they're old. And But now we're like, oh my God, can you believe it's yeah, been 14 I mean, years since... You know, right, there know, is a part of me that if someone... Out? Right, if someone says like, this thing happened 10 years ago, there's a part of my brain that's thinking like, oh, you mean in 2004? Right. Yeah, so anyway, that's a bit of a digression, but it has struck me. It's like, is this... Is, <laughs> Where, it is was, weird. Was Herodotus seeing things like, man, it's been, I can't believe it's been 150 <laughs> years since the fall of Syracuse and Alcibiades. 
Um, anyway. <laughs> wow, Alcibiades, your coffee has kicked in. Good morning. <laughs> or it has it. <laughs> uh, think about Alcibiades. Didn't have, <laughs> didn't have that one on my bingo card this morning. Yeah, it's, you get you get other things going on there. Okay, so uh, there's there's. Thank you for writing in everyone who wrote in about that. Uh, other kinds of. I do want to mention the deep dive again. Um, Rebecca mm-hmm. and I have pieces up. That's book rights. Substack newsletter. There's a free edition that came out today. Uh, again, if you don't know how Substack works, there's a paid version where you get all the sends, and there's a free version where you get some of the sends. A, so you can get get them, and people who don't or can't or don't want to pay can get something, but also an enticement to get you to throw a few bucks to get the full thing. Um, the edition today was kind of a grab bag, some recommendations from staff writers, some kind of fun things on their net. Go check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes. There, Rebecca and I also had a wonderful time on the most recent episode of the Book Riot Patreon podcast talking about power ranking the books of 1996. I think we continue to have fairly similar reads on the years. Mm -hmm. I think this time the way we we spread the reads out was interesting. I had a much different number one than you did, um, but it was a good conversation. We got a lot of nice comments on there. Continue to like really enjoy this format. So if you've been hemming and hawing, you've been on the fence, I think there's something on the other side of the fence for you with the power ranking in 1996 on this. I Yes, I agree with that. It was just bangers all over the place, oh. 1996. And yeah, in not quite as good ways. as 2000, but it, way up there, way up there, way yeah. up there. Um, so go check that out. I had another thing for you. Chat GPT-4 came out next week, and I guess mm-hmm. the thing we're going to be doing for a while. And... <laughs> I continue to be largely nonplussed. Or which ways? Am mm-hmm. I plussed or nonplussed? My shoulders are down about it. Right? I think Whatever you're plussed. Plus that is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're just plussed. Yeah. Nonplussed means the opposite of what you think it is, which I know that, but then I get confused about, wait, it's like when you know how you, that you misspell a word, you're like, wait, is that the way I think yeah. it's spelled, which means that that's my misspelling or is that what I've taught? I don't know. You get yeah. this into a recursive loop We are loop plussed there. and combobulated. Yes. ChatGP definitely knows what nonplussed is, but what it doesn't do very well on. So there's, you know, one thing that's happened is one of these new AIs come out. People, mm-hmm. the PR department for OpenAI, whoever the hell this is, they put it through the battery of tests. You know, the GRE, the MCAT, the board exams, the law school exams, and this banged out pretty much perfect scores on almost everything except. But did you see this? No, no. Did you see this, Rebecca? Okay, okay. Um, I was had to f- try to find a source. Um, someone sent it to me because, well, you'll know why they sent it to me in just a minute. Okay. So the AP exams, fives, <laughs> fives, 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 except for two of them. And Rebecca, you and I, everyone talks about the robot ex- apocalypse coming and, you know, you got to be a uh-huh, doctor uh-huh, or you got to be a uh-huh, forager to survive. Uh-huh. It got a two on the AP language and, liter- and language exam and a two on the AP literature out of five. Everything else fives. It got twos. We're all safe. Welcome, literary nerds. We did it. We're going to survive. The computers can't beat us. I'm going to live forever. I feel really validated about my Noam Chomsky (laughs) confirmation bias moment recently. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Love it when the technology proves my point. Yeah, and I didn't see anyone sort of explaining why, so I'm going to take a wildly uninformed stab. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. Do it. Um, My name is Jeff O'Neill. Because... Again, the LLMs, these are regurgitation machines. They are beautiful. They're the most efficient regurgitation machines that have ever been created for human knowledge. But the, the language and literature exams ask you to create something new. They ask for a novel interpretation of something. And it yes. can do that. 
It can't do that, and it can't do style. Well, it can it can copy style, but it cannot have a yeah. style of its quote unquote own, right? So to speak, yeah, right. Voice. There's and nothing. It, like. it 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 can't originate a voice, yeah, because it's a duplication machine. It can right. mimic or repeat or remix. You know, mm. it can write you a song about what a four hundred one k is in the style of. You know, like an yeah. 80s rap, which is a thing that I had it do. Uh, but, <laughs> but, Bob's marketing but it, right, emails it, are going to get wild here soon for you, <laughs> I can tell. I know. The, the day that I did that, I was like, I wish you could use this for something. <laughs> it's probably a good thing that financial communications are heavily regulated. That, that's right. Yeah. For now. <laughs> right. More regulated than Just the Just a bank, giant apparently. asterisk. Like, hello, clients. This week, my wife is obsessed yeah. with technology, and here's the news. <laughs> I gave her a quad espresso and a keyboard and a new login <laughs> right. to ChatGPT4. Future girl is now freelancing in yeah. financial journalism. Hello, and welcome. It would be something. I don't know if it would work. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's... This feels affirming and right in line with what we suspected, so I'm glad to see it but it it also seems like unsurprising and predictable that no one even at chat gpt has said yes this thing can create beautiful new language or style like it they're being pretty straight up about what it is and the, the the like the sky is falling interpretations around it are exactly that informed by other people's fears and concerns and i think uncertainty or lack of familiarity or maybe just the thing where people read headlines and don't actually read the stories about what a thing can and can't do. I think there's a lot of that going on with AI in general. Um, and yeah, it's not going to write you a beautiful sentence. It could probably write you a very, like a C level, you know, average five paragraph twos. essay. So I don't, I, don't yeah. know what, I don't know what that corresponds to. Is that you don't get any college credit for that. I think if I remember my AP score correctly, and this is completely off the dome, and it's been, wow, can you, can you believe it's been 20? No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm <laughs> uh, I, I think you maybe could get some, some colleges would give you a credit for a three or a four. I know for a mm-hmm. five, I took a bunch of these, and I walked into undergraduate with yeah, a bunch of credits, which was great. And those were fives, and I know there's a couple fours, but I don't know. Anyway, it's not, you're not getting college credit for a deuce. Let's just put it that right. way. And, and I, nobody's I throwing you like a scholarship because you got a two on an AP test. No, no. Um, so it's passable, so, but that's it. Yeah. And I think that's the story about ChatGPT. It will give you the information in a passable way if you've got to do a technical mm-hmm. communication or like I had it write me some sample policies for things like oh, for various HR this. kinds. Of, yeah, I didn't use them, but I was just like, what would it what would it look like mm-hmm. if I was like, write me a sample policy about whistleblowers or whatever. And it does just just pull from widely available stuff that when I Googled, like I, I did some comparison just out of curiosity, like I Googled samples of those same things and you can kind of trace back like, oh, right. These are the common things that appear mm-hmm. in this policy. Those things also appear in this chat GPT version. And that's what you would get on a, I don't know, AP test essay question about what do the scaffold scenes in the scarlet letter mean? You're going to yeah. get regurgitations. You're not going to get someone's original mm-hmm original thought about it or or a creatively phrased take i'll tell you when i'll worry about the chat when i when i'm going to worry on it's when chat gpt9 is like 
can you believe it's been 10 years since ChatGPT4 <laughs> came out? That's what I'm going to well, worry. Well, you know, since, since it's regurgitating what it feeds on on the internet, it shouldn't have a very hard time getting there. <laughs> yeah, when Chat, ChatBT is like, man, can you believe it's... it's 1993 it's four, was 40 years ago. It's been 50 years since Nirvana's Nevermind came out. I'm like, yeah, you're right, GPT-7. You get me. <laughs> All right, well, moving on. Speaking of things that, okay, Filippo Bernardino, let's do it. Mm. Um, we get the first new information that the 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 text manuscript thief speaks, and what he said is so naive that it kind of breaks my. Heart. I it's. Have to say, I read I mean, the whole statement, and it is heart. Yes. It is heartbreaking. Do you want to give the people the the, the gist yeah. or give me lines so, or what do you what do you think? Yeah, so yeah, Filippo Bernardini, who is that manuscript thief, he pleaded guilty this week and he wrote a five page letter to the judge in anticipation of sentencing. His lawyer wrote a thirteen page letter. Uh, Publishers Marketplace, Publishers Lunch linked to those, and I have landed in the place of I feel very I I feel very bad for this person. Yeah. Um, yeah had what sounds like a difficult childhood, really loved books uh, in the way that, you know, a lot of folks use them as a form of escape and connection in a moment of difficult childhood and like dreamed of working in publishing, had finally secured an internship at an agency and thought things were going well, but notes that like they were not going well. (laughs) Um, And he has difficulty came to understand later that he has difficulty reading social cues and interpreting, you know, verbal feedback from people. So what he thought was going on was very different from what was going on when he left that agency, applied for tons of jobs in publishing, came to find out later that the agency did not give him positive recommendations when his references were checked and just was really longing to stay part of the industry and to feel like he was part of the world of books. He was like devastated by the idea of losing access to galleys. And that's where this whole thing comes from. His dream died, Rebecca. His dream died. Yeah. His dream died. That's where the whole thing comes from. And that he's like, you know, I had observed how my colleagues talked to each other, how they wrote, how they would ask for access to these kinds of materials and so one day i set up a spoof email account and basically the high of being able to get those manuscripts became addictive and compulsive and he uses those words um, he also refers to diagnoses related to mental health that have happened sort of in the interim a lot that material is redacted from the statements but this is like it had the, at first when the story broke, it had that feeling of like, what is going on here? Yeah. And we have been puzzled because there was no, like, it didn't, we couldn't understand the motive. There was no attempt to sell them. There was no piracy happening. Right. There, we, we, it was clear that this person was not like profiting off of this in some way. And so I think what we have here is a person who's dealing with mental health and, and probably some, it sounds like neurodivergent issues and did not fully understand that what he he didn't understand at the time that what he was doing was harmful like it seemed like a victimless crime because he was the only one 
reading these things. His statement acknowledges that now he understands this. Um, some authors who were impacted have written letters to the judge as well, offering their take. And there's a, uh, there are some interesting quotes from Jesse Ball, yeah. who was like, please don't send this person to prison. <laughs> this is not... It's my guy, Jesse a- Ball. I know, I, I know. <laughs> I thought of you when I was reading it. I was like, oh, thank goodness Jesse Ball's coming through and being <laughs> yes, yes. really tender. Yeah. And I don't. I had really complex... I had a really complex response to this because obviously it's wrong. It is fraudulent yes. to you know present yourself as someone that you are not and to try to obtain these materials. People's trust was violated. It's scary to have your inter- your not your uh, intellectual property stolen mm-hmm. from you, and also nothing else was done with it. It's not a totally totally victimless crime. The harms though are minimal to what potential harms from you know ip theft could be um and there's you know a lot of stuff going on with this person that sheds light on motive and i think what the response should be so i ended up kind of feeling like a little bit bad for having talked about this in such a spectator kind of way because he now also talks about how difficult it's been to be under the microscope to have his family and friends contacted like this person is suffering yeah and that doesn't let him off the hook but it does make a more complete picture i think from a generating sympathy from the lit nerds point of view what a document this is by Mm -hmm. the way i mean these this is crafted probably with by lawyers let's not joke uh, let's oh yes this yeah. is anything other than that and it's made for us to say the kinds of things we're saying now caveat caveat mm-hmm. caveat right, right having right. said that what's the opposite of some, wanting to see someone pu- punished to the fullest ex- you always hear that they're gonna be punished to the fullest extent what's the can they be can he be punished to the least extent i don't want him off the hook i mean people right right this is there's an element of this this is literature no one cares it's a white person let's look the other way. This is how systemic bias gets put into systems like this by doing stuff like this. But also we could look at it quite a bit differently. And we're also not lawyers. The court of rightness does not sound um, send down jail sentences. That's for the, uh, mm-hmm. the legal system <laughs> to do. In the court, the court of rightness has some sympathy for this person, yes. but does not authorize or dismiss what they did. I think, <laughs> right. I think you and I can, can have, a, there's a little twinge Anyone that's worked in, I'm sure it's, this is true in other industries too, but do you remember the first time you got a review copy when you were a blogger, mm-hmm. Rebecca? Mm-hmm. You I feel do. special, man. You feel you do. special. You feel like you have access. If you're a fan of the industry or any kind of industry like this, you get into a screening, you get a demo tape, you get uh, an invitation to the soft launch of the restaurant. You feel special. And people like to feel special, about, especially about the things they care about. And I can see how, at this moment, when he could see his career paths evaporating before his eyes, that I can still get the books, that I, I can still scratch that itch, I can still nurture that that feeling of being an insider and seeing what's coming out. And it got away from him. And mm-hmm. no one found out, and it seemed easy to do. Um and it became its own kind of high. I can uh, this makes yeah. sense to me now it, in a way that it didn't yes. before. I guess is the easiest yes. way for me to say it. Yeah, th- I agree with that completely. It seems like the perfect storm of yeah. kind of vocational awe around books and reading 
wanting to mm. be able to tell a certain type of story to himself mm. about his identity and his career and his connection to books and then you know committing the first crime sending the first email having it work and having that intersect with mental health issues that lead to compulsion and not being right. able to stop doing it and also not being able to fully comprehend what you were doing like yes these are documents created by lawyers and they are intended to create sympathy and result in a lower kind of punishment and and the lesser end of the punishment i just do agree with that i think on the whole there wasn't a lot of material harm done laws were broken that needs to be addressed like just there is justice in a response here but i'm on i'm on the jesse ball end of the response and it sounds to me like you are as well yeah um let's see where do we want to go next let's do our second sponsor break because we could get into a a couple of these things today's episode is brought to you by flat iron books publisher of 888 love and the divine burden of numbers by abraham chang so this is an interesting love story it's great for fans of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and high fidelity it's set in the mid 90s at nyu and it follows young wang who has gotten the advice of love through chinese numerology from his uncle so he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life and then he meets arena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Lee Bardugo. So Lee Bardugo, um, hard to play. I'm, I'm trying to connect, looking for a historical antecedent for Lee Bardugo's career. Mm-hmm. Um, she started out writing Shadow and Bone, season two coming out now. Yes. So there's a, it's the world's coming up Lee Bardugo this week because season two <laughs> of Shadow Bone's coming out and she just signed an eight-figure deal 
with Macmillan. And for those of you in the car without access to like counting digits on a calculator, <laughs> so that's at least $10 million. Yeah, right? somewhere that's between 10 and 99. <laughs> um, this is a eight-figure multi-million, I mean, eight-figure multi-million dollar deal is redundant, but whatever. A slate of new projects to be published across multiple divisions of the company in a variety of formats, age categories, and genres. The deal includes work to be published with Flatiron, Nightfire, Roaring Press, First Second. So for those of you who don't speak imprint, Flatiron is Macmillan's what? Literary, commercial, upmarket, yeah. commercial, downmarket, literary? I don't Adult. Know you, it's, yeah. it's, one of the, it's one of the most important commercial fiction imprints out there. If not, mm, well, that's a different pod. That's a Patreon. We can, but, we can power <laughs> rank it. <laughs> yeah, but pod. a lot of imprints. like Oprah picks, a lot of Reese yeah. and, you know, Good Morning America yes. book club picks, that right. kind of stuff. Right, right. Nightfire is tours. I think uh, Macmillan is Nightfire. It doesn't matter. Nightfire is horror, I believe, it, mm-hmm. or fantasy slash horror. Most anyway, I'm getting lost in the weeds. Roaring Book Press and First Second. Roaring Book, I believe, is kids' books, and First Second is um, graphic novels. Graphic novels. Yeah. Oh wait, it just tells me. Sorry, I didn't even go to the next <laughs> section where it tells me they give me. I, I was not going to point that out. The second. Thank part you of very that much. Sentence. You're very kind to me. Adult novels, horror children. I got it right. <laughs> you did. It took me you a while did. to get there. Um, so. <sighs> Historical antecedent, Rebecca, do we do you have one? Who's done something like this? The closest that I can think of, except it spanned publishing houses, is the like slate of announcements we got about Colleen Hoover at the end of last right. year. Um, but I haven't seen a single author have a deal like this with multiple imprints of the same house doing yeah, multiple categories, yeah. formats, and genres. The headline of this should really be "Get That Bag, Lee Bardugo." <laughs> like, she's. Are we looking at a proto James Patterson here? Is Macmillan looking to mm. cultivate a James Patterson type figure? It would be smart. It would be really interesting to see someone do that, especially in YA or like Bardugo's yeah. flavor of fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe taking on. I mean, the the true, the full James Patterson there is taking on co-writers and starting your I mean. sort of book yeah, yeah book farm um uh, maybe seem in, like that's bardugo's personality i mean i, I don't, don't know her I anything but yeah. i've read her and i it doesn't sound like that what she'd be interested in um, and i but, think there's know. less hmm, less interest in something like that from the upmarket readers that bardugo gets like it, it's sort of mid and upmarket right. commercial fiction and you have to be like pretty comfortable with the commercial end of commercial to be like, yeah, James Patterson outlined this book and it was written by some guy named Ted <laughs> and to like not care. Yeah. But if you want the Lee Bardugo brand and the flavor and you're a fan of her work and her writing that like that art quality, you know, like chat GPT could probably write a pretty passable James Patterson novel. I don't I mean- know. I'm sure James Chatterson, could... they're thinking about a James Chatterson situation <laughs> of some kind. Show title. Uh, I don't think that it could do a Lee Bardugo. Like, there is a style. There is yeah. a vibe that you're coming for when you're coming for a Lee Bardugo book. I think it's really, really smart of both her and Macmillan to be interested in experimenting with how you can shape and flex that vibe to be for adults, Mm. for teens, in a graphic novel, in horror, in something else. And I would love to see that from more 
authors who are doing who are working in that like cross genre space already what happens if instead of just you know publishing your cross genre lit fic fantasy with flat iron you take like you lean he- more heavily into fantasy to do this thing you lean more heavily into ya to do this other thing right. but it, it's all connected and i think then you do take your crossover readers with you which is a james patterson thing you do get mm-hmm. people to sort of follow you into whatever you're doing um I can't think of a better contender other than Colleen Hoover for somebody Colleen to make Hoover this is, happen. Colleen Hoover is the most obvious one. She's already yeah. doing it. The most recent right. Colleen Hoover release um, has a, I don't remember, it has an ampersand in somebody else's name with her. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked. I don't know what that means in terms of who was um, putting their fingers on the keyboard and how that all worked out. But I can totally see it with Colleen Hoover. Um, Lee Bardugo, I, I guess maybe throw, let me try another mental model on you what about rick reardon presents how about that that maybe is oh, closer yeah when mm-hmm. he, the, he's done these rick reardon the author of the percy jackson and the apollo series a middle grade really has a lane and, and really has dominated yes. that lane in the post um harry potter world has does this i don't even know what it's called rick reardon presents but it's like he doesn't write these i think he helps pick manuscripts maybe right. and it has the author that they're the author of the book but it has it's somewhere between an imprint and a I don't know, author kind of font style you know, and type, but it says I, Rick Reardon presents on the top of it. I actually think the best analog for Bardugo is J.K. Rowling. That Bardugo is maybe closest to the new mm. oh, J.K. Rowling, right. and she did years casual ago, vacancy in those Galbraith things. That's interesting. Yeah, and is like a multimedia empire at this point, yeah. and Bardugo's doing that. It's the books, and right. the books lead to fandom that supports a Netflix series and a movie, and like everything that Bardugo's done in the last decade pretty much has been adapted or is in the process of being adapted, mm-hmm. and those things are finding audiences and doing well. Mm-hmm. And that there's less of a frenzy around it because they're not for kids, and it's not as big as Harry Potter. Nothing is, <laughs> nothing is likely to be as big right. no. as Harry Potter, but I'm reminded Reminded that like when the very first Lee Bardugo books came out near the start of Book Riot, Kit Steinkellner, one of our original contributors, this too. wrote a piece, right? Piece. About yeah. how the like the next place Harry Potter fans should go is to Lee Bardugo. And I think that's what we're seeing here. That mm-hmm. if there is an ascendant person to that throne, or even just like a throne next like a, a, a junior throne, the silver medal level of the throne, yes. Lee Bardugo is <laughs> headed there. <laughs> Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how this, and I think it's not a mistake that we're looking at genre, right? Uh, mm-hmm, fan, mm-hmm. Specific genre, that seems to be... Yep. Magic and romance. Know, uh, and Yeah, and I, we haven't talked movies at all this year, but everything all at once, everything everywhere all at once is like the trailing indicator that's been going on with books for the last 10 years, right? Of like yes. this spec fic crossover genre literary plus another category <laughs> right that like mainstream media consumers are familiar enough with the idea of a multiverse to make a movie like mm-hmm. that a giant hit yeah yeah um so bardugo's statement is pretty interesting talking about when everyone wanted books about kings and queens they rolled the dice on my team of six outcasts trying to pull off an impossible heist and when i mm-hmm. wanted to go someplace far darker they backed me in welcoming readers to Ninth House. So she's giving a lot of credit there to Macmillan and being very gracious there. I don't know once you've had a shadow and bone like success and someone comes to you and is like, this is what I'm going to do next. You're like, you know what, Lee? I don't think so. But... <laughs> 
yeah, Macmillan took a chance and then has been smart, I think, to let Lee Bardugo be Lee Bardugo. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm glad. I, I, li- I've, I liked the Grisha verse. I like this. I don't know if it has a, this duology of Hellbent and Ninth House. I've read them both. I really like them as well. Um, I could, you know, there are people out there with big overall kind of multi-titled giant dollar deals that I'm not going to read any of the books or at least even pay attention in a mm-hmm. passing way. Um, but she's going to be the the busiest woman at high school right now because she's executive producing the series. She's got all these books coming out. She's got the press for the Greaserverse stuff to do. Lee Bordigo, I assume it now has a team to make the Bordigoverse so. a thing. Yes. So, uh, congratulations her. To, to her. Happy to see that. Uh, where do you want to go next before front list for anything you want else you want to hit? Yeah, I just want to shout out the Lambda Literary uh, finalists list. Lambda Literary is an organization promoting LGBTQIA issues in the world of literacy, books and reading, Mm -hmm. uh, and their annual awards are coming up. If you're looking to read more widely and more intentionally uh, with LGBTQ authors and issues, this is a great list to start with. Um, And a book rioter named Susie Dumond has a wonderful debut lesbian romance called Queerly Beloved that was nominated. She's a finalist, so shout outs to her. A couple other uh, things we've talked about on the show, um, Lost and Found by Katherine Schultz, which we book clubbed last year, uh, is a finalist in the lesbian memoir category. How Far the Light Reaches by Sabrina Imbler, which I really loved, collection of essays about the natural world and relating her identity and understanding of, um, or, or Sabrina has they, them pronouns, their understanding uh, of themselves and their identity as a non-binary person of color through uh, sort of the vehicle mm-hmm. of creatures they've studied in the natural world. And then Open by Rachel Krantz, uh, which is a memoir about navigating an open relationship that I found mm-hmm. to be just like a very popcorny page turner <laughs> in some like, wow, you've made some choices way. And the, the open relationship is not the, wow, you've made some choices. It's kind of like everything else <laughs> that she yeah. does uh, is nominated as a finalist for bisexual nonfiction. But there's a ton. There are a bunch of categories. Lambda Literary gets um, pretty granular in how they break out different identities and sort of different vectors of LGBTQIA life. Um, So lots and lots of books are featured here. And it's a great place to start in any given year for looking at ways to incorporate more queer authors and ideas into your reading life. So shouts to Susie, big congrats uh, to her and to all the finalists. Uh, But wanted to just call that out for anybody who's looking for a good resource. Lambda Literary is a great place to start. Yeah, a lot of good stuff there. Um, Let's let's turn to Frontlist Foyer. Um, this is kind of dovetails on news that we didn't put in the, the agenda, mm. and so maybe I can sneak it in here, but um, Oprah made her 100th pick this week. Yes, um, she did. And Napolitano's book called Hello Beautiful, which I read the blurb. I had heard Dear Edward became a thing, and I don't really know why, and there was a big piece. Um, sidebar on a sidebar. <laughs> the publicity out rollout for this pick was like something I haven't seen from an Oprah pick before. Maybe it's because a hundred, but on the mm-hmm. day there was the announcement, there was also a profile of Napolitano in the New York times, which for the world of books is the coup you want for publicity. Is yes. The, the profile, right? Um, <laughs> That's what you want at the same time. And so I don't, this is clearly in the making again, continue to be fascinated, flabbergasted by whatever the pipeline that gets these books into Oprah's hands so that she can, 
talk about them in, in, in her really immaculate white button down with her really sort of <laughs> Professor McGonagall glasses look that she's rolling with. I'm into it. It's it's a real look these days. I wonder um, if she and Ina Garten get their shirts at the same place. Yeah. I, the, there's. Do they go to the wealthy women of a certain age store and get these shirts? <laughs> it's like secret Chico's. Yeah, it's like it's like there's a there's a trap door behind Ann Taylor's where you go down in there, <laughs> right? And there's this, and everything the, just really you add a shirts. couple zeros, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, sartorial corner is not my forte, but here we go. <laughs> um, and I was reading about the book because you know this is what I do, and this one is described as a retelling of Little Women, but it also includes basketball. And people who are fans of Walt Women's Leaves of Grass. Huh, I, was like, what? I wonder if a person like that exists. I, and I was like, huh. So this is sold to me, and mm-hmm. I bought it, and I'm 100, or, well, it's on, I'm reading it on my iPad. Um, I'm 50 pages from the end. And I almost, this is the kind of book that I'd almost want to do like a, a, a corner for or spend 30 minutes talking to you about because I'm like, what is this book? Because oh. it's very it, well. It's not. It's not bad. It's not bad, and I, and it's not objectionable. And I think that's what it is. It's not objectionable. It does okay. give me Little Women vibes, but it's meant for adults. But it feels like there's a certain Arrested Development feeling to it, hmm. even though it has like suicide and estrangement from your families and. There's just something really strange about it. And I know you're going to surprise it, but my best way of describing it is going to be through metaphor. The first time I'm going to tr- trot out this <laughs> experiment for me. There's a place in Portland that has vegan donuts, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've had it before. And for my birthday a few years ago, I had friends in town. We did a donut tour. Very Jeff stuff to do. Great time. Minivan and a donut tour. What else do you want in this sweet, sweet life that we have? Um, and I bit into the vegan donut, and I was like... It's like a donut without a soul. Like it, it is a donut, mm-hmm. but like it, there's some. It's like it's like a diet ver. That's not even the right word. But there was like there was something missing. And you know what it was? Animal products. Like the thing that I like. You know, like the donut mess of it, it all. In in reading this book, I've read it quickly. I haven't begrudged my time doing it, but I'm having that experience of like this looks and has the mouth feel of like a literary commercial novel but there's something missing. And I can't tell if that's a feature or a bug because that's one thing I've learned in doing this and, and reading these kind of, you know, call, you know, is it the crawdads or the Colleen Hoovers of the world? The very thing that I think is a bug for other people is a feature, <laughs> right? No, I, I think that's it sounds true. Like, no, 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 I think that's right. It sounds like you are whelmed by this book. Uh, is that fair? Mm, I'm not even oh. sure how to think about okay. it, actually. That's, I'm, I'm confused. I'm like... Yeah. Is a vegan donut a donut for me? I mean, it is a donut. It's, this feels similar to um, maybe that Ann Patchett essay collection that I always trot out mm. as the thing to give your mother-in-law because there's nothing objectionable. Like, Yeah, I feel like it's a step or two down from that because on the sentence okay. level, there's, there's not a whole lot to recommend it. And maybe it's just vibes. You know, it's sisters mm. and there's mm-hmm. stuff going on. And there's drama, but even when someone and something very bad happens, it doesn't feel like it's that bad somehow. I don't know. It's oh, very, very strange. The, um, um, and that it's a hundredth pick, which you would think Oprah would be 
mindful of what's, I, I don't know, I find it a very curious book and a, a curious phenomenon that Anne Napolitano in the New York Times piece, they made clear, like, she's been writing for a while, a lot of books never got picked up, and mm-hmm. something about Dear Edward and this book, I'll be curious if people like, anyway, that's enough of my front list for you, I'm kind of okay, connecting it to this thing, but very, very super- curious. That is experience. super interesting. I saw those announcements come out this week, and the Little Women comparison was where I was like, well, not for me. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that you're reading it. I was very surprised not to see Oprah do like a confetti cannon on the 100th pick for yeah. a significant Black author. Um, and I've been also watching the, which is just yeah. what it is, like that's just an just observation. <laughs> yep. uh, I've also been watching the stuff around Dear Edward and the like, I think that's a thing somewhere maybe on the this is not a fair comparison to her but i'm going to make it anyway the nicholas sparks spectrum of emotional manipulation the reviews that i've read of dear edward both the book and especially the apple series are like this is a five alarm snot bomb engineered just to be a five alarm snot bomb right and i'm not particularly interested or drawn to that kind of reading or entertainment but a lot of people it, it works for a lot of people i think that is the thing that to me is a bug but to a, to a lot of folks is the feature up market um, colleen hoover is not the worst um blurb i could do mm, if you think okay. about it in those terms hmm. all right um so. i had a banger of a reading week mm. with the new eleanor Catton novel burnham uh, wood i picked that up because you were talking about it it's it looks great i am gonna it's, tell me about it it's great uh and this is my first experience with eleanor Catton because i did not get to the luminaries the year that it came out someday i'm gonna go back now that i've had you're a moment with her I, it's very, i'm very i'm Maybe. glad for you you think this is a thing but rebecca I'm not, <laughs> you're not going to pick up an 800 page book from 22 years ago in my dotage i'll okay. go back to all those door is this stops what i'm memorizing I song to myself <laughs> Yeah. Yes, that's what we're doing. Just once I'm in a week. Community theater playing the apocalypse. Right. Uh, we're going to have a phone Roman call once a week when we're old because right. we'll have been podcasting for decades, right? And yeah. you'll be reciting to me your your new stanza of Song of Myself. Um, Post haste. Yeah. Okay, we're going to do that stuff. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. And I was hooked from like the, the first page of like, oh, I, I got you. She got chops. Like the sentences mm-hmm. are great. Uh, but it's about a group of like gonzo eco-conservation activists in the on the south island of new zealand like younger millennials older gen z kinds of folks who uh, their whole deal is they like sneak onto people's property and then also access public property to stealthily plant and cultivate crops that then they reap and sell to like local businesses and farmers markets and stuff and Mm. it's a it's fueled by the like no one should be able to own the land kind of ethos and also kind of an f you you're rich you won't notice if we use a corner of one of your back acres to do this thing Um, and for the most part like they're right people don't notice (laughs) that they're doing this thing (laughs) Uh, but they become the leaders of this group mira and shelly who are best friends become involved and aware of a big piece of property a couple hours away from them that has recently sold to a reclusive billionaire Uh, their plan is just sneak onto the property you know plant some crops in a place where no one's going to notice us but they don't know that the billionaire hasn't actually finalized his purchase and that his story about what he's doing with that property 
is all a giant conspiracy. What he's actually doing is trying to extract really valuable ore mm-hmm. that is, you know, under the ground from both his property and the national park that it's adjacent to. So they get embroiled with this guy who's like, let me fund your organization. They don't realize who they're taking money from. He's like, think of uh, I really like Elon Musk vibes if Elon Musk wanted to pretend to be interested in the environment. Like that kind of thing is going on. Um, so there are... There's like some suspensey thrillery elements with this guy tracking them and are are they going to figure out who he is and what he's really up to or not? The people that he is trying to buy the land from, are they going to figure out what he's up to or not? All kinds of shenanigans occur and it's like peppered with sort of uh, elder millennial, which I think is the fair age Mm. category for Eleanor Catton, like elder millennial commentary (laughs) on the kids these days (laughs) and how they talk about things, (laughs) which is kind of satisfying as well. It's just really sharp. Uh, You know, I loved the writing. The book is really sharp. It's also, it's really funny, like just sharp and funny and captures you know the the like vibe and essence of a group of really idealistic young people who are trying their damnedest to do this thing that they think is right but also you know live in a capitalist society and the idea of somebody giving them a bunch of money would make things a lot easier yep groups like that have a lot of complicated internal politics and you get mm-hmm. some of that happening as well it's just it's it really great uh, i had a, a wonderful time with it so i'm happy to recommend burnham wood that's awesome my my the book that i finished one of the books i finished this week i guess it's kind of not dissimilar dna is um called your driver is waiting by priya Gunn. oh yeah novel um how was it's it about it's pitched as a up modern update of taxi driver which it's been yeah. a long time since taxi driver like a gender flip yeah, you know, taxi driver yeah. i kind of only know the meme stuff at this point i remember vibes so the plot i'm not sure but the main character um she drives an uber uh, so it's mm-hmm. contemporary and she gets into a romantic relationship with a well-heeled white do-gooder um okay and brings her one night it's hard to know what the crux of the plot really is, and I'll talk about why I say that in a minute. Um, takes her to a party where some of her friends are, and there are people of color and queer and working class and um, gig economy stuff, and they're f- talking about a strike for the other mm. Uber. It's not called Uber. It's called something else. I don't even know if they mention the name of I don't. I don't think Guns does the thing of like making up the fake name of the company, so it even seems okay. weirder. She just doesn't... We all know what she's talking about, right? It's Uber, Lyft, whatever. And this white woman thinks these people are dangerous and stuff goes sideways. I guess enough left at that. Okay. Um, and I can see definitely, you know, the taxi driver vibe, the gig economy stuff, this person, the, the main character, she get, becomes isolated and, and radicalized in a way and then fixated in a way as well. It was good. I really liked it. It's funny as, as well, sharp as heck. Um, has a lot of elbows and edges, which both you and I like, and I especially like mm-hmm. in this particular situation. I find myself most drawn in this book to the little interstitial vignettes that are just a little vignette about a particular passenger or a night driving around. Oh, I thought interesting. that was the most interesting part. Um, the, the, the A plot was good, but I found myself looking forward to... I picked up these three pe- people and this happened. I picked up 
the, mm. the kind of minutia of driving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't read anything about the author. I don't know if she's actually done this. Having read this, either she has done this or her her ability for generative, creative detail <laughs> is unparalleled. So either one of those <laughs> things is amazing. But I really enjoyed it, and it's a writer for me to watch. Um, it was a quick read and interesting. I don't know what I don't know who, who's going to pick this up. I guess I don't. It's, it's not quite genre enough to be genre. It's not literary fiction. It's not an easy read. Everything has a pink book cover with an illustration on it now. So I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm, I'm not joking. Like you're, no, I don't no, know no. What you're I'm right. supposed to understand from books anymore about the, um, everything is good for a kind of Instagram TikTok mm-hmm. imaging. And there's a flattening out of of cover design, I think, especially for these betwixt between commercial fiction stories. It's very difficult to tell who a book is for from looking at its cover now. And that's not always been the case. You used to be able to get some useful data or like uh, at least the right direction. (laughs) Right, right. And and a debut author of a mix sort of falling between a couple of genres or categories has always been hard. Usually that's mm-hmm. the most interesting stuff to me, frankly, um, but I really liked it uh, and was glad to have read it. I liked it. I found it much more stimulating than um, Hello Beautiful, if for, okay. for what it's worth there. All right. That's our show cool. this week. Uh, links to everything we talked about, bookriot.com slash listen. You can email us, bookriot, um, excuse me, podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, go check out the Patreon. Go check out the deep dive um we're getting ready to record uh next week's patreon episode now this can be we'll talk about we'll let you who aren't subscribing next week know let's we'll keep it a sub- surprise for the the subscribers so they can see it in their feed um next week but we're gonna do that rebecca thanks so much as always Bye.